Real Estate Coaching Radio, America's number one trusted resource for realtors who demand authentic, real-time coaching. Starring award-winning real estate coaches Tim and Julie Harris. Get ready for unfiltered, full-strength honesty about what is truly working to get you into action and make you money in this new real estate boom. Now to our hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. Welcome back to Real Estate Coaching Radio. We're your host, Tim and Julie Harris. We are broadcasting live from lovely and warm Austin, Texas. Julie, welcome to today's podcast. Julie, you're going to have to call back in. So listen, guys, we're going to be talking a lot today about appraisal defense strategy. We're going to be discussing with all of you guys what you need to be doing to basically defend yourself against a lot of these appraisals that are coming in too low. And today we're going to get into the thick of it. We're going to get into all the practical and tactical stuff that you guys um, have come to know and love us for. So get ready to take lots of great notes. Now, before I get to it, I had an email come in this morning, and it's an email from a new member uh, Julie, you should be live now, correct? Yes, you are. I think so. It's so. an email from you are. It's an email from a new member, and I want to read this. And this is only my second run through, but it's an important email. It has nothing to do with uh, appraisals, but it does have to do with working with buyers. So I'm going to read this. I'll kind of uh, skip over some stuff. Hello, Tim and Julie. First of all, I'm a new coaching client. Definitely, thank you for uh, your coaching and amazing knowledge. I've been an agent for two years, but since I've heard of you guys, I feel like I'm starting all over because I don't know anything, but it's a nice feeling that I'm learning. Well, there you go, Michael. Good job with that. Um, first off, uh, when, I, uh, when I'm talking to buyers, depending on their timeline, and how do I decide what kind of follow-up to do with them? Uh, is there any kind of system that you tend to follow? I love the systems and follow them, but I'm not the greatest at figuring out what to do or how to create them. Different types of timelines are what follows. And then he's got a specific plan what he has. And, uh, and I'll just read, listeners, I'll just read what he wrote, and you guys will discuss it. So um, just starting to look, maybe thinking about a year uh, next year. So he's trying to categorize these A, B, or C leads, basically. Buying 10 to 12 months, buying 6 to 12, uh, 10 months out, buying 3 to 5 months out, and lastly, buying under 90 days. Is there different follow-up systems that you use and what kinds of contact, uh, contacts and how often? Okay, Michael. So listen, I'm going to give you a very simple uh, explanation or answer to your question. Long-term buyer uh, lead follow-up is bullshit, so don't do it. There's this simple explanation. Now, why do I mean that? Because when you start basically wasting time trying to court buyers that are years, if, you know, months away, you're going, to be, you're going to spend money, you're going to spend time, and the real true cost, because I know a lot of the systems nowadays that drip on buyers are automated, the real true cost, the negative cost of that is the false sense of security that it gives you, having a bunch of buyers in a database thinking that somehow magically you know, they'll churn up. Now, statistically, once you get enough buyers in some kind of database, some of them buy. But what makes you think, Michael, that, they'll only, that you're the only agent that has them in their long-term drip follow-up campaign email database type thing? Are you guys following me on this? Are you listening, listeners? So here's the reality of it. If you're focused on buyers, you're probably never going to actually have much of a real estate business because you're always going to have to be chasing these buyers. Buyers never have to buy. And this is the essence of the reason why we get you guys, do our best to get you guys to focus on listings as your primary uh, source of business because there's no such thing as a buyer that has to buy. And I'll prove it to you. 
every single like a seller for example there are actual examples of sellers out there plenty of them where the sellers have to sell they don't have a choice well they i suppose have a choice but the idea of not selling it causes them gr a great deal of discomfort for example owning two homes at once forced relocation they inherited the property they can't afford the property the property's distressed that you know owners distressed there's all kinds of reasons why you actually have sellers that have to sell and those of you guys who are successful listing agents if you go through and you look at your whiteboard right now and you look at all the listings you sold so far this year and you remember back to what their motivation was you might find one and maybe 20 those will want to sell but for the most for the most part the sellers that successfully transact are the ones that have to sell so michael and everyone else listen to me now let's pivot and let's talk about buyers there is no such thing as a buyer that has to buy no such thing they don't exist matter of fact buyers this is the reason you guys burn yourself out on buyers and this reason buyer leads are so easy to get um, it's because there's so many of them. You know, if you're dropping people, let's say, for example, you're buying leads from some portal. You know, you're buying buyer leads from some portal, and they're telling you you got to long-term cultivate them, and you got to drip email campaign them, and you got to do all the rest of it. That is such a utter waste of time. Because if you spend that same amount of effort, psychological effort, if nothing else, towards focusing on becoming a powerful listing agent, here's what happens. If you take one listing in most markets, you will have to beat the buyers off with the stick. And when those buyers call you, you quickly and decide whether or not that you're going to work with them or not. And our criteria is very simple. You work with the buyers who are also your sellers. So you work with the buyers that are basically also listing a house with you. You can work with a relo buyer. Sometimes those are, you know, in certain price ranges, those might have decent motivation. But for the most part, the only buyers you work with are the ones that pass these simple rules. And by simple, I mean they're not simple, but they're real rules that you guys need to respect. Number one, they're only working with you, and we'd prefer that you guys have them sign buyer agency contracts. Oh, we don't do that in my marketplace, Tim. No, you and your friend agents and maybe your office don't use buyer agency contracts, but professionals do. So if you're going to work with a buyer, make sure they sign a buyer agency contract, number one. Number two, they have to be fully approved by a lender with the only contingencies or the only subject to's uh, being that they have to be uh, – the house has to appraise. Basically, that's it. So when you guys send these uh, buyers to lenders and the buyers just do these cursory quick looks – and then you wonder, well, why are my deals falling out? It's because the buyers were never fully approved in the first place. So do not work with a buyer until they spent the time with the lender and they've done all the three merge credit reports. They've actually verified income, verified employment, verified down payment, actually been approved. By the time that buyer ends back up on your radar, that buyer should have all their financing approved. With the and the only when you get the lender's letter, guys, this is what the lenders do. They're sneaky. They'll write you lenders letters and they'll say, "Congratulations, Bill and Betty Smith were approved for whatever, whatever, and they're good to go." And congratulations, great. And then the second paragraph is, and it's sometimes in um, lender speak, but the essence of it is subject to uh, a verification of, and then you'll see, you know. A successful or, you know, credit check uh, and verification of employment. So in other words, what the lender did is the lender just had a quick phone call. The lender just went to their computer. The lender dropped in their name into a, you know, a lender approval letter and a pre-approval letter and then spun that off. And then you guys started wasting your time. The lenders are trained. We don't coach agents or we don't coach lenders rather, but the way that they're trained is to not waste any time on a file, i.e. working with a buyer until that buyer is in contract on a house. You get it? What they're going to do is they're going to basically say that buyer's good to go. All the while, the buyer could be not even close to being approved. 
And then because what you're going to do is you're going to go out there and spend your nights and weekends. You're going to burn up your time. You're going to waste your life, your energy, your hopes, your dreams, all that. And then uh, because and, and then you're going to discover the buyer couldn't buy or the buyer wasn't truly motivated. So in our opinion, the only buyers you should be working with are the ones that are working exclusively with you, the buyers that are completely approved, and the buyers that are your sellers that also want to purchase something. And maybe a reload buyer, but truth, even those are sometimes flaky. But that's pretty much it. So, Michael and everybody else, when you're asking me about long-term lead follow-up with a buyer, I say don't do it. Don't waste your time. Focus all your best energies on becoming listing, a listing agent. You will get buyers, guys. You, uh, buyers are the easiest thing in the world to get. The idea of buying buyer leads seems foreign to me. The idea that you guys are still spending so much money buying buyer leads, just take one, two, or three listings, listen to what we tell you how to do, and just do it, and take some listings, and you will not have any shortage of buyers. And then you guys, you know, if you just focus all your best energies every single day on becoming powerful listing agents, and don't even have, I mean, buyers are someplace out in the background, right? If you have a great buyer who is, you know, meets your criteria, they're pre-approved, they're only working with you. They sign a buyer agency contract. Then you can work with them. Even our most successful agents, by the way, these are agents that have 50, 60, 75, 80 listings. What we'll tell them to do is always have one, two, or three buyers that they're working with. But they are the hand-selected, uh, you know, pre-approved, uh, the buyers that have been through the gauntlet. Every other – Every other buyer is just a tire kicker. Leave those to the other agents out there. Now, when you generate buyer leads, if you don't want to work them, do what Zillow does. <laughs> Sell them to the other agents. So when you get a buyer lead in, let's say you guys have 10 listings and you're using something like 800 Home Hotline and you're getting all these buyer leads, take those buyer leads and refer them off to other agents in your office and your marketplace, all these other agents that haven't discovered the gospel of being a listing agent. Let them waste their time chasing the buyers and you collect 30% referral fees. You guys get the point here? You see how we're taking a professional approach? You see how we're trying to value your time? Do you see that, you know, hey, guess what? Tim and Julie have actually sold lots and lots of real estate, so they know what they're talking about, and as a result of that, they know where to steer you guys in the right direction, so it'll end up with you basically being of service to other people and making money. So, Julie, any thoughts on that question before we get to appraisals? Yeah. Well, when in doubt, here's a good filter to put real buyers versus super long-term slash flaky slash questionable buyers. And maybe not for super newbies because they don't have the experience to say this yet, but for everyone else, think about your last easy, easy to get along with, easy to close buyer side. How did that buyer behave versus some of what you're calling a lead? Real buyers are chasing you down saying, I'm ready to buy this weekend. Here are the five homes that I've got to see. Or they're responding to the five homes you sent them, and they're saying, yes, I absolutely will meet with you this weekend. What they're not doing is being chased down by you month after month, you know, on your drip campaign, et cetera, et cetera. Really motivated, really qualified buyers act differently than everyone else. So when in doubt, make that comparison. But I think, Tim, to your point, no buyer actually has to buy versus the sellers who do have, have two situations. So right. buyers you know, can always really rent. Watch your time. Yeah. That's it. Buyers, or live with mom and dad rent. or live with their kids or not move in the first place. So exactly. there you have it. Exactly. I think that was a pretty robust answer to Michael Van's question. Thank you for your email, Mike, because I'm sure you're not the only one with those thoughts. 
Back to you. So, guys, listen, the appraisals are – a lot of you guys are suffering from serious appraisal problems in your marketplace, and I realize that this is something that's getting worse. It's not getting better, and um, in case no one's telling you, I'm going to tell you why it's getting worse and why it'll continue to get worse because the market's changing and the appraisers know it. So the sellers don't, okay? Sometimes the buyers don't either. So what we're seeing is in many markets, especially in stuff that's, say, over your average sale price, we're seeing price erosion, value erosion. We're seeing the market kind of settle back uh, a little bit. In, in other words, houses are not worth what they were six months ago in most markets in most price ranges. Now, you could say that's seasonal. It happens every year, maybe in fourth quarter, but remember in third quarter. So you could say maybe it's just because the market's hot, now it's leveling off, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Market conditions are market conditions. What you need to be on the lookout for are these appraisers that don't really, or I'm sorry, these situations in these deals that sometimes can be problematic because the appraisers are not being, uh, you, you, frankly, they're just trying to get their job done. They're trying to move on to the next appraisal. So today, Julie's going to get into the meat and potatoes of some specific tips to make you guys, an, uh, an, uh, I would say, an armchair expert at this, but give you enough information so that you can save deals where other agents just walk away from them. So, Julie, where do we leave off? Yes, we, now we're talking about the what should you do about this. Previous podcasts, we talked about how do you know that you're going to have an appraisal problem, how can you prepare yourself in advance. Now we're getting to the practical, applicable, what do you do about it. And I'm going to start with a quote from our astronaut friend who said, competence means keeping your head in a crisis, sticking with the task even when it seems hopeless, and improvising good solutions in tough problems when every second counts. It encompasses ingenuity, determination, and being prepared for anything. So I would translate that into realtor speak as this. Don't hide from the problem and don't freak out. Competence means keeping your head in the crisis and figuring it out. So point number one in what to do, remember that proper previous planning prevents pitifully poor performance. Plan ahead. Actually discuss with your seller before an appraisal problem sneaks up on them and have a plan. Hope for the best, but uh, plan for the worst. Remember the seller's net sheet. What are their real numbers? Don't guess. It's impossible for you to advise a seller what we're going to do and what the plan is if the appraisal comes in 20 grand low, if you don't know what their numbers are, if they get the 20 grand or somewhere in between, or they don't get it at all. So actually talk about numbers. And Tim, I do think this is a place that a lot of agents freak out actually having to talk about money with their seller, especially newer listing agents. This is normal, and I, whenever I have agents freak out, Tim, I bring them to the dentist's chair, and I say, you know when you're about to have dental work, and not the dentist, and not the hygienist, but the office person comes in and presents what you're about to spend, how much your insurance company is covering, and they make you sign. If they do it for your teeth, don't you think you should do it for something far more expensive, like the sale of a home? It's normal. So if you're not weird about it, they won't be worried about it. Do do seller's net sheets, low, medium, and high. Point number two, know the real numbers. Is the square footage actually accurate? Does it matter what side of the road they're on? You know, some of you, the, the price on the good view side of the neighborhood is a lot different than if you're looking at power lines. Are they on a busy road? Are they across from a park? Was there an addition that isn't showing in the public record? This is where being a great BPO agent serves you extremely well. Note to self, start doing BPOs if you're not already. Second note to self, take an appraisal class when your continuing ed is due, because the more you know, the less fearful you'll be of the situation, and the stronger you'll be at pricing in the first place, not to mention doing battle with the appraiser if you have to. 
Point number three, know the buyer's situation, whether it's your buyer or another agent's buyer coming to you on your listing. Did they love this house and it's their one and only dream home? Or do they already have a backup plan in mind? This may influence what the buyer is willing to do or able to do in a reduced appraisal situation. You need to know that going in. Point number four, have your own plan. This is where kind of the rubber hits the road, Tim. This is where we, this part is where we usually hear about it in coaching. Have your own plan to protect your commission. What is the best, the next best, and the last best solution? The best solution, the buyer makes up the difference. Maybe you had that written into your contract. That's great. Cut and dry, assuming they can swing it. Next best, the buyer and the seller meet part way. They split the difference. Next after that, you and the other agent get to play save the deal with your commission. And what's the worst case? You're the only one contributing to save the day. But do you see, Tim, how I set that up from best to worst, where usually agents freak out and go right to worst, oh, my God, if I'm going to save this, I'm going to have to chip in, and I'm not going to make anything. Or worse than that, probably, is they walk away and let the deal die. Does that make sense? Sometimes, sometimes, when, you guys are, sometimes when you guys do some of these wackadoodle deals where the seller is going to uh, – basically the house is going to go for what you suspect might be over appraisal. Another little trick to do is basically write it in the contract. Now, it's not always easy to get the seller to agree to this. But basically, write in the contract that the seller will agree to, you know, sell it for the appraised price. So if something essentially goes over asking price, you can write into the contract. You know, it's easier to try to do this on the buyer side than it's on the seller side. But write into the contract that basically, you know, if your buyer is getting financing, they're going to have to have the house appraised. The, the financing is going to be contingent on the appraisal, right? So if there, for some reason that gets blown up, it doesn't make sense. The seller is going to have to, you know, it helps to have the seller pre-agree to lowering the price to reflect what the actual appraisal value is. That's another little trick that more experienced agents sometimes will write in the contracts to save deals ahead of time. J to Julie's point, these are all really important conversations to have along the way. Um, a lot of you don't do enough deals and are not aware that this appraisal problem is becoming more of a problem. So to Julie's point, go and have these conversations with these sellers sooner. Don't wait to have these conversations with them about, um, you know, in essence, what they need to be doing to uh, prepare themselves. Let them know, listen, Mr. Seller, we're going to price this based on the last sold comps. And, um, you know, we have maybe three comps that are justifying a, you know, a price, and we have three comps that are justifying B price. And then you go and get an offer, and you accept the offer, and you know, and the buyer agrees to the price. Well, Mr. Seller, unfortunately, it's not necessarily just the buyer and the seller that are essentially determining price, because the bank has this appraiser come in, and the appraiser basically confirms the, you know, the price, because the bank, in essence, is a partner on these transactions too, right? I mean, the bank op oftentimes has more of a, you know, a risk on these mortgages than the um, than the actual buyer does. So that's the appraiser supposed to do, Mr. Seller. The, the appraiser, or more, Mr. Buyer, for that matter, the appraiser represents the bank, you know, and they're basically protecting the bank's interests. So from a seller's perspective, so Mr. Seller, if the appraisal comes back, then the appraiser is using comps that are going to basically uh, require a lower sale price. We need to be prepared to adjust the price so that it correctly reflects the market's expectations and what the appraisal is. Because the challenge we're going to have is, is not only will that appraisal, uh, that, that appraiser most likely, or that appraisal, that's going to stick with that house. That's going to be attached to that address. So even if we were to leave this or let this buyer go, we're probably going to have this problem again and again and again until we, you know, accept the fact that maybe the market isn't or the, the actual market value isn't what we hoped it would be. 
Now, I hope that doesn't happen, Mr. Seller, and we'll do our best to prepare for that not to happen. But in the back of your mind, if that does happen, just know that I've dealt with this sort of thing before and we can work our way out of it. That kind of conversation is the type of thing that you guys need to have after you have the listing contract signed uh, just to prepare the seller emotionally. Now, the seller is probably going to react in those situations by saying something to the effect of, there's no way I'm going to do that, blah, blah, blah. The buyer can take it or leave it or they can go jump in a lake. Yeah, you know, but you get and, that out of the way before it exactly. actually happens at the 11th That's hour, it. right before closing. Get it out of the Wouldn't way. Wouldn't you rather Let have, have that little... 10 days before or 30 days before? I would. Let them have their little yeah. emotional swings up and down, and uh, that way when it actually comes around to it, they've already dealt with that stuff emotionally. These are all tactical things that as you guys start doing more deals, just remember all these little tips and secrets that we give you and all these little breadcrumbs you're supposed to be leaving or the seeds you're supposed to be planting with the seller along the way or even with your buyer, okay? So that's, these things are also relevant on the other side of the transaction as well. But it will make it so you keep your deals together because really at the end of the day, when you're having a conversation about money, it's not really about money. It's about ego. That is what it's about. So it's the seller wanting to be right. Most times, that's what it is. The seller wants to be right about price. The seller's house is worth more than what you know the buyer thinks or the appraiser thinks because the seller has some you know elevated uh, view of um, value because it's theirs. And I'll give you guys an example of this just to kind of highlight this. The worst seller that I've ever met in my life is my wife. <laughs> hey, Julie. That's true. Every time we've sold one of our personal houses, Julie has been pretty much the worst at overpricing because it's emotional and it's very difficult to separate yourself from that. And I get it. And Julie's a professional. She coaches agents for a living. And so I do like the high comps in the neighborhood. (laughs) Why not? It's natural. It's human nature. And you know, I admit that I I want top dollar because it's mine. So you guys are listening. She's already rationalizing, isn't? And we don't even have a house for sale. You see how she sounds like a seller trying to defend her price? Right. <laughs> I understand. I do. That's how it's I know this stuff, right? Yeah, but it it, well, it's true, though. But it's, it's all subconscious. People naturally go into a defensive posture when it comes to any conversations about money. Because deep-rooted into most people is a fear. Uh, it basically is a scarcity mentality, and they're fearful that if they leave money on the table for the buyer, that somehow that's going to adversely affect them. Whereas the reality of it is, is that sellers who overprice, it's a 100% about their ego. Again, the wanting to be right. In most cases, where you guys have these appraisal issues, it's not over like a million dollars, is it? It's over typically less than 50. In many cases, less less than 10 grand. That's just ego. So, but if you the way to uh, so you don't feel like you're doing your ego doesn't have to do battle with the seller's ego. The best way to manage that is to plant these seeds along the way so these conversations go smoother. So, Julie, back to your notes, please. Yes, you got it. So, point number five: sometimes some money is better than no money. You have to fix it by chipping in, and sometimes it's not. So, you've got to look at this. If you have to put it back on the market, say you're the listing agent, how long will it take to sell again? And will you have the same issue again? If you have the buyer, how long will it take for you to find them something else? Is your client also buying with you? What else is really affected if the deal dies? So you've got to really look at all of these different elements and and cut your losses, right? So if it comes down to it, and the buyer and the seller and both agents have to chip in to make some you know, $5,000 problem go away, and, of course, this conversation changes as that number gets higher. If the appraiser was off by 50 grand, probably you're not going to save it that way. But if it's micro money 
it's probably worth it for you to just move forward, do the deal, and move on, especially if it's your seller that's also buying, especially if it was hard to get an offer in the first place, or if there's nothing else to sell to your buyer. It just depends on the elements. So you've really got to know that going in. Point number six, above all else, be of service to your clients. This means anticipate, educate, and lead. If it's meant to be, it's up to me. Assume that you will be the reason that it closes, not that everybody else will fix it for you. And Tim, I'm going to turn this over to you for the last couple of points no, no. so I can get ready for oh, my you have premier your call. class. Okay, I'll go, yep. I'll get the last Back three points, you. no problem. Thank you. Okay, so right. no, point number seven, know how to dispute an appraisal, request a, uh, a value appeal or dispute. Every lender has appeals process. Make sure the appraisal, appraiser is familiar with the area. That's the biggest reason you guys have appraisal problems. Have comps ready and meet them at the house. Remove the electronic lockbox so they must confirm to meet you there. Let the client know what you're doing on their behalf. So there's a little trick. When you have an appraisal problem and you dispute it and the appraiser then has to book appointment to go back and see the house because many times they just do drive-bys. They don't actually go in the house. Do not let them key in. Go and meet them. Actually meet them at the house so you're the one with the key. You're the one letting them in the house. Don't let the seller do it because you want to be there to give them essentially a CMA to justify your price, to justify the comps. You're going to have to basically work on behalf of your seller. Point number eight, if all else fails, the buyer uh, may go to a different lender, but statistically second appraisers come in within 10% of the first one. Maybe that's enough, but it, uh, maybe it isn't. So it may also matter less that the buyer can put more money down. Just simple stuff there. Point number nine, be the listing agent. Of course, that's our, point, our last point. Be the listing agent. Listing agents have a signed contract with the seller. Most buyer agents just go back to the drawing board. Maybe even the buyer gets frustrated and they lose the buyer. Those of you guys who have not learned the art of being a listing agent, how many buyers have you lost just because the process has frustrated them and then they've decided to basically stop working with you, not because of anything you necessarily did wrong, but because of the process, how it works. Again, guys, work with listings and remember listings are mental labor you have to have a skill set that you develop and buyers are physical labor so look guys here we are halfway through the year how many nights weekends afternoons have you blown uh have essentially blown away lost because you were chasing buyer leads had you had listings five listings 10 listings 20 listings in every market you can do that we'll show you how you guys would have been in a situation where you could have been basically having an inventory of homes for sale when you have listings you can choose whether or not you work buyers. You can choose whether or not you work weekends. You're in control. You have leverage. If you do not have listings, guys, you're going to have a serious challenge growing your business consistently. So here's what I want you to do. A lot of you guys are looking for a free coaching call, uh, and I appreciate that. Just go to freecoachingcallsforagents.com, freecoachingcallsforagents.com. Or if you'd like to, just uh, text the word coaching to 24587 text the word coaching to 24587. When you do, we're going to give you copies of our free books. The Real Estate Treasure Map is the one that I think is most applicable because it's your fill-in-the-blank business and life plan. And you get that just from texting the word coaching to 24587. Remember, data uh, rates may apply. So if you guys need us for anything and everything and anytime for anything or have any suggestions on folks we might be, uh, we should consider interviewing, anything like that, any feedback whatsoever, this show is for you. Please email me directly, Tim at TimAndJulieHarris.com or Julie at TimAndJulieHarris.com. You guys have a fantastic day. We'll talk with you on the radio tomorrow. Remember, you can listen to our replays at any time by going to TimAndJulieHarris.com or, of course, on iTunes and Stitcher. Have a fantastic day. We'll talk with you on the show tomorrow.
This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris, Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows. And until next time, thank you for listening to Real Estate Coaching Radio with Tim and Julie Harris. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.